Psychology Nerds, and welcome to an episode of Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here, as always, with my good friend and co-host, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How's it going, G? It is going really well. I, I am excited for this mind-blowing episode that we're going to do today, so I'm just going to drop that there for you. How are you today? I am well, and that was a dynamite pun. I am proud, proud, proud to know you. So for people who are, as a teaser, I guess, we are going to be talking about the great story of Phineas Gage today. And I was curious, you, when did you learn about Phineas Gage? Do you remember? I, I feel like I might have learned about Phineas Gage a long time ago, but to be honest, it was just really recently that I really understood the story. And it was just two days ago that I actually read the facts of the story. So I'm going to say 48 hours ago. <laughs> Outstanding. Yeah, I should, I should preface things by saying that, so to prepare for this, I sent Georgina and our guest, who I'll introduce here in a moment, an article titled Recovery from the Passage of an Iron Bar Through the Head, uh, which is the best named uh, article. And it's, it's probably not fair to call it an article. I guess it's a paper read to the Massachusetts Medical Society uh, in 1868, um, which really sort of felt to me as I was reading it, like it was just a, a series of journal entries, right? I mean, it's just a bunch of, of notes uh, about working with, uh, with Phineas. So, I'm in a similar, but I actually don't remember when I first learned of Phineas. I have to believe it was intro psych, if not maybe abnormal psych, um, uh, which was actually for me the second psych class I took. Um, You know, and I don't, but I I do know that like you, I I recently sort of unpacked the story in a lot more detail and started looking at like some of the, the original stuff that was written about it and was sort of both fascinated and also grossed out. Uh, it was, uh, there's, there's a lot there to talk about. So before we get to our guests, we got to talk to Kelsey. How's it going, Kelsey? Going great. Hi. Hi, and Kelsey. Kel- <laughs> Hello. <laughs> and Kelsey is going to stick with us a little longer. I'm so, so, so thankful for that. So I was worried we were going to have to say goodbye at the end of the semester, but Kelsey's sticking around for another semester. Thank you. Woohoo! So exciting! Now you can't get out of it, though. Like now it's on air. You're just basically like with us for life. We're not going to let her like graduate nor get a job or or whatever. So, you know, expect really terrible letters of recommendation from us. (laughs) (laughs) This was my plan from the start: was just to mention it on air, whether she said yes or no, and then (laughs) and then she'd just be stuck with us. So. <laughs> you can see Kelsey's work at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. She is doing awesome, awesome stuff. Thank you so much for that, Kelsey. It's great. Anything you want from our listeners on social media? Anything they should do for us? Honestly, um, just some more interaction would be phenomenal. Like we love hearing from you guys and we absolutely love and appreciate all of our followers. So if you have any ideas for episodes or any psych related questions or otherwise, throw them at our hosts. Like they want to hear from you and they want to be able to answer things that you have interest in. 
That is great. Nice job, Kelsey. I agree. You heard it, listeners. Chime in. Let us know what we uh, what we should be doing. So, very cool. All right. We have got a great guest today. You have heard him on the show many times. He studies neural development and moral judgment here at the University of Wisconsin Green Bay and comes on the show whenever we need someone to tell us about the brain. He runs the neuroscience lab here on campus and today he's gonna tell us if it's bad for us to have a three foot long tamping iron driven through our skulls. It's Dr. Jason Cowell. How's it going, Jason? It's going awesome. I'm thrilled to be here. And uh, I have to say the the puns about this episode that have gone on for the last several days have just really, uh, I, I see some excitement ahead for terrible dad puns. So this is going yeah. to be good. Very good. So I think we should start with a quick, some, some of our listeners might not be familiar with, with Phineas. So um, I think we should start with just a recap of the uh, of the original story, and then we're going to get into some questions for uh, for Jason. Um, so, uh, as I mentioned there in Jason's intro, uh, Phineas was a man who had a three foot long tamping iron driven through his skull. So, a, a tamping iron is used to pack explosives, and as I understand the story, uh, basically you drill a hole, uh, you fill that hole with explosives, and then you put sand over that. And this is critical because I believe a step may have been missed. And you put sand over that, and then you pack it down. You pack it down with this tamping iron, right? Phineas's coworker missed that step, uh, forgot the sand, and then when he packed it down, there was an explosion. The tamping iron fired out of uh, this person's hand and up through Phineas's skull, who was leaning over the hole, sort of supervising his work. It teaches him to micromanage, um, <laughs> and uh, went up through Phineas's skull underneath his eye and out the top of his head. Um, it landed 80 feet away. And by the way, a tamping iron is like a three foot long bar, right? So it's a big, this particular one is about three feet, three feet long, about an inch uh, in diameter, uh, went out through the top of his head, landed eight feet away, took a bunch of his brain with it. Um, the, sorry, Georgina. The, I'm just gonna be over here gagging. Don't mind me. <laughs> The crazy part about this, so like this is a tragic accident. Uh, the crazy part though, is that he was basically like talking just a few minutes later. And so, you, and then a couple hours later, he was actually walking. And so I think that the account is that he walked from the, the carriage that carried him to the doctor. He walked into the doctor. Um, and uh, let's, let's start there and unpack how things went. So. Jason, I'm going to ask, I want to know your Phineas Gage origin story. Do you remember the first time you learned about Phineas? Yeah, I, I mean, it was undergrad. So my undergrad neuro class is where we definitely covered this. And then uh, being that I study aspects that we're going to get to shortly here, which are a lot of the things that are changed by lesioning parts of this, the brain, uh, he's kind of the, the critical lesion patient that everyone refers to in social neuroscience. So he's a core piece of everything having to do with a lot of the topics we're about to get to, meaning grad school, there are amazing books like Descartes' Error out there that talk a lot about Phineas Gage and go through, and it's, they're fun ways to think about the nature of the brain. And we should say, because I don't know that you said it, Ryan, that this happened a really long time ago, like 1848 or something like that, like a, like a very, very long time ago. So he's sort of been the model patient um, for a very long time. Um, 
So 68, 1868. Yep. It was well, no, actually, actually, uh, Georgina is right. It's so it's in the, the late forties, but then the paper was in the late sixties to actually oh. do it because the gotcha. doctor wanted to respect confidentiality of the changes that happened for 20 years. So waited till he died and then published, but Got it's, it. so it's a pre-civil war thing and it actually predates most of us know about TAN, which is Paul Broca's patient that had where Broca's aphasia comes from, or uh, Carl Wernicke's patients that all had Wernicke's aphasia or different aspects like that. Those all came actually slightly after Phineas. So this is kind of the original lesion patient that uh, you can point to. And so has for, I guess, centuries kind of made every neuroscientist pretty excited. It's a, it's a cool topic. So let's get into it. Like, what did we learn, Jason? Like, what did this teach us? Well, so first and foremost, I think the, I think the, well, okay, the big, the big pieces that have happened in the last 150 years are that uh, the brain isn't one big thing that all operates in a certain way. It's that there are specific areas of the brain that have different functions. And that was kind of something hinted towards uh, by Phineas and, and against some of the big theories of the time about how the brain worked. Um, but also that it's not just small little modules that work only by themselves because several things were affected by just lesioning out. So it kind of, it's this really cool story to point to about how you can get some evidence towards different theories of the biological workings of the brain and how that impacts psychology just by looking at what happens when you cut things out. Um, or in this case, blast things out with a big old metal rod. Um, but I think at the time it was really interesting because you know no one believed this has actually happened. Even doctors didn't believe this would happen, and that's because he should have been dead. I mean, if you look through any of the pieces, he should have died after this. And so the fact that he didn't gave us so much insight into what those areas of the brain, so we'll get to what those are in a second, but parts of the prefrontal cortex, what kind of impact they actually have um, on our personality, on our self-control, on all of this. I wonder if we could talk about that for a second before we talk about the different parts of the brain is that um, the disbelief that it was possible was really fascinating to me um, that, you know, how difficult it is for us as scientists to believe something that seems miraculous, right? Like we, we don't have a lot of, we don't put a lot of stock in like miracles and faith basically like, like uh, there's no way possible. And then that's been going on apparently for centuries. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it's something I always wondered about and especially in this case where you're, you can sit there and you can actually see, well, at least part of the hole beneath the, the skin, part of the scalp here, and you can see it right where it went in underneath. Uh, we're not on video, so I'm guessing no one can see the hand motions I'm doing, but right underneath the eye, heading back through the roof of the mouth and, and heading up. It's, so it's fascinating because uh, there was evidence of, of a hit happening but at the same time, if you hadn't been there right away when it happened in, it's either Vermont or New Hampshire. So I think it's Vermont. Um, so when it happened in the Northeast, um, then it's like, you know, his doctor and in conjunction with others brought him down to Boston to a medical conference and no one believed that it had happened a, a year later because he shouldn't have been alive. He should have died, if not from the initial impact, 
from the infections that should have happened afterward, from sepsis that should have happened after, from all these different things. And so they said, well, he couldn't have actually had this happen. It must have just been a glancing blow or it must have been something. Part of it is that uh, that era had a lot of, I mean, it's, it's Barnum and Bailey Circus. So it was where you create these illusions of major things happening. And so there was a certain level of disbelief that was out there. And I mean, to the point that um, Phineas, I believe he was invited to, it's either he was invited to join Barnum at Bailey Circus or uh, did a trial for, it's something along those lines where they wanted him to join the circus because he was an oddity. And, uh, and so because there was this fascination with oddities, that's, that's part of why disbelief happens. And then medical doctors knowing that I mean, we're talking in a time here where um, there weren't sterile or any kind of sterilization happening in a surgery. So you, you weren't doing antibacterial disinfecting, you weren't wearing any kind of sterile gowns, you weren't in a sterile uh, surgery theater or anything like that. So even surgeries meant that a lot of people would die. So the idea of a dirty tamping iron from the railroad blasting through and this guy not dying is just, it, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it, and I will admit to me, like, it's luck, right? I mean, it's like, in my mind, um, it's it's ultimately like, this is just, I guess, if you see, uh, there are going to be gruesome injuries, especially when you're working on the railroad. And within that, there are going to be people who survive who are outliers. And what makes this particularly fascinating is sort of the opportunity to study this this outlier, this extraordinary circumstance, much like many of those other extraordinary ones we talk about. You mentioned Broca and, and others as examples. Yeah, and I think it's even, uh, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, no, I, I think the fascinating thing uh, is um, even when it was, so it's, it's a bit a big piece of modern day neuroscience even where in the 90s, uh, Hannah and Antonio Damasio reconstructed from the scalp, the possible areas of the brain that were damaged, et cetera, and went through this. But even when they were trying to predict using current, well, at the time, current uh, neuroimaging software to do 3D reconstruction, the amount of potential pathways that that, just from the entry wound and exit wound that you could get from the skull, trying to backtrack into what could have been uh, damaged, they had, I think it's something like 15 different pathways, but the majority of those pathways they could immediately eliminate because had it been a couple millimeters one way or the other within that realm, he would have died because some major artery or vein would have been. Uh, so it's just even the fluke of a couple millimeters one way or the other would have meant he bled out immediately. And so it's just this fascinating piece that even with modern tech, it's a marvel. So what? let's get into some of the changes of the the what people describe as personality changes and things like that that resulted and I, I think it's worth noting too that it, there are some people who actually suggested some of these things are a little overblown uh that that we we didn't do in fact this harlow article is sort of the, the example that people have to go to because it's not like there's a lot of non-anecdotal evidence around this but. um so i think yeah this is the this is the different piece of how I would argue academic publishing has changed. Even in the case of a, of a case study here, um, there would be extensive examinations now, extensive assessments on everything you can, I mean, I'm thinking HM, which is you know, 50, 60 years ago now, uh, maybe more than that now, uh, since, since the 1950s, but uh, 
there you have documentation of every piece almost exhaustively in some ways. And there's, there's actually ethical arguments about that. But um, the piece here is um, Harlow, who was the primary doctor that was responsible for um, Phineas Gage until he moved to uh, South America, Chile, I believe it was. Um, so he was his primary care physician after that, taking care of him. And he thought it was violating confidentiality to talk about any of the changes that happened. Uh, and so that's a key piece, which is no one really, I mean, his family could document, hey, this is happening, um, but there isn't a ton of evidence of it. You could document from work that he wasn't particularly good at some things and, and constantly changing jobs and having conflict, but uh, there weren't medical records of it until this article 20 years later when Harlow came out and said, okay, he looked like he was doing great, but it turns out here are the major changes that happened from that initial uh, hit. And so some of the words that Harlow used in this uh, documentation were like demented, um, childlike, uh, like irritated, uh, and then cathartic at one point and depressed. He actually used that word too. Like there were a lot of different words uh, used to describe what was going on. So what would we call those things today? Like what did we learn uh, about those behavior changes and what do we know or call them now? Yeah, uh, I mean, so this is why I love Phineas Gage is that what we now call those are executive functions. Um, so your executive functions or the CEO of your brain where it's all about organizing, planning, um, controlling your impulsivity, making sure that you're forward thinking and goal oriented, all of those are highly governed they're not exclusively in prefrontal areas or, or the sides of the prefrontal areas, your lateralized PFD, uh, but that plays a huge role and the networks that stem from there play a huge role in them. Um, and so Phineas, so we should probably first say where this tamping iron went through was part of his prefrontal cortex. So it was part of um, behind the eye back in a little bit. Um, and so if, if you were to draw kind of a line, if you put your finger in the middle of uh, the top of your mouth and draw it straight up through your brain, that end and hitting, I believe it's the uh, left side of the brain, uh, it's just off center to the left, is where, that's where the main hit uh, sort of happened. And at the time, uh, that would have been one large area. So that's just, well, at the time, they wouldn't have even known that prefrontal cortex was a thing, but even for the beginning of modern neuroscience, you would have called that just PFC. Uh, now, it's actually argued to be a little bit on ventral medial PFC, which is just a slightly more specific area of the PFC, in this case, a little bit to the side of the middle. Um, but what's fascinating is uh, the, the cluster of symptoms are broadly social cognitive. So it's executive function that we're talking about, but also then how those influence your ability to interact with others, um, to adequately judge other people's intentions and to figure out how to do these kinds of things. And I think some of the fascinating accounts are the ones that, uh, you're right, Ryan, in saying that they're overblown in many ways, I think, but the ones that are talking about him reverting to almost childish type behaviors is this fascinating thing now in, in modern day studies of executive function where it's somewhere between three and five, which I have a three-year-old daughter and so get to see this live, but it's um, that's when kids are starting to develop these ideas. 
And it's very biologically based. It's based on the maturation of areas of your prefrontal cortex. So it's first getting a lot thicker, a lot more dense, and then it starts to prune and become more and more efficient, it reaches adult-like levels by about 26. But it's one of these things where it, at, at these preschool years are what they're talking about, Phineas kind of looking like, being remarkably impulsive. And then it stems into emotion. Uh, and so actually, I don't even want to take this from Ryan. I'm guessing, Ryan, you may even want to talk about the emotion side of it, but yeah. First, I want to read actually the, the quote for people to get a sense for what we're talking about. It says, he is fitful, irreverent, indulging at times in the grossest profanity, which was not previously his custom, manifesting but little deference for his fellows, impatient uh, of restraint or advice when it conflicts with his desires, uh, goes on to say, a child in his intellectual capacity and manifestations, he has the animal passions of a strong man. So getting a sense for, and uh, later on it says, uh, his, friends, uh, his friends and acquaintances said he was no longer Gage. Um, so like, there is some acknowledgement that there were pretty significant changes, at least you know, when, at the time that, that Harlow is writing this, um, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think from the emotion perspective, what I'm so intrigued by is the, the idea that if we think about this in sort of the crudest of ways that so much of that executive function piece is about impulse control. It's about making informed decisions. Um, and to me, the, the piece that's always interesting there is sort of how do you, how do you express your emotions when you're feeling them, right? Because the, the origin, quote unquote, of those emotions is, is deeper than that. Um, so how do you express those things? And what you see from that sort of description is someone, I mean, you, you hear words like impatience and uh, and the childlike piece, the animal passions piece, all those things really speak to someone who is acting on emotions without control. Yeah, it's, it, it, it reminds me so much um, in, in many ways of some of the earliest description. Okay, earliest is all relative because it's about 20 years ago. But um, so, so earliest in, you know, I was an undergrad. No, I wasn't even an undergrad then. Okay, anyways, I digress. Um, You're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> no, I think the fascinating piece is um, a lot of the arguments about adolescence, aspects like this that we talk about uh, potentially happening in adolescence as well, um, are argued to be a, that dual systems hypothesis. It's what Ryan was just talking about, which is where um, your control abilities or executive abilities aren't at adult-like levels yet, but your emotional uh, your ability to feel emotions, to recognize your own emotions and to act upon them is pretty adult-like. And so it's that, it's that difference between the two that actually yields adult-like emotional feelings and the want to express these without the ability to control those downward. To, to downward. And so it's this fascinating thing because this didn't happen until he was in his mid-20s, meaning he had very much adult-like everything then this happens and then it pretty much cripples his ability to engage in impulse control. And it's interesting to see the kind of downward cascade that happens once you cut off that control ability and all the things that fall after that. It's the, the inability to keep jobs because you keep speaking up against your bosses uh, when you disagree with them. Whereas you know from social convention that if you want to keep your, I mean, in the 1840s, 50s, and now if you want to keep your job, you don't speak up that much. Um, and so it's, it's just 
social conventions kind of went by the wayside and it's this it's this piece that i find fascinating for sure so you you talked a, a bit about um like the the changing um like modern day neuroscience versus 1848 um so how has brain science in the largest sense of the of the word changed since that time yeah i mean um so if everyone anyone who's taken an intro psych class you probably heard about the four humors that come from all the way back thousands of years ago in philosophy that was still kind of a relevant thing at the time that this happened to phineas so you hear about him being bled for instance at one point that's because they thought his humors were out of balance. You hear about like they, he was prescribed laxatives because they thought his humors were out of balance. Like the actual medical things were based off of the humors being out of balance and that's where mental illness was coming from in this case uh, and then trying to fix that. Obviously that's not the case. Even by the time that he died, that wasn't the case any longer. Um, and, and so the progression that you started to see was, um, you know, you see hooks, uh, initial idea of the cell, then you start to see that blend into concepts of interconnected neurons within the brain by Ramon y Cajal. And you start to see like this very advanced version of what this brain could be, even at the time when you could, all you could observe was, hey, chunks of the brain, and this is the bad way of saying it, but chunks of the brain are on a tamping iron, you know, X number of feet away from him. Something's happened here. It's, it's fascinating because they didn't even know if it was, if that would mean he couldn't remember anything. It turns out he could. His memory was still intact. He could still speak. He could still move. He could still, so, so many basic functions still there. The fascinating thing about Phineas is that it was these more advanced functions. And that's, I think, where a lot of modern brain science is non-invasive now. So we don't have to lesion. Um, and, and I'll say that because later on, I'll... <laughs> <laughs> later, on, later on, I'll invite people to come join us in the brain lab, but we're not doing this, obviously. Um, I, I, I think the everything about it is as a lot of modern neuroscience is actually based off of the development of computers. Um, as computers became increasingly more efficient, you could handle thousands and millions of data points at once. And so even though you could get a rudimentary EEG back in the 1920s, we didn't have computing capacity to actually figure out what in the world those things meant. Now I can collect 2000 samples from 32 sites every single second for 45 minutes and figure out what's going on. Um, and that's the same thing with fMRI as well, where you're, you're taking millions of data points at once. That's the cool piece of brain science is that um, so much of the advancement has led to us being able to, to some extent, structurally map the brain pretty well. Um, in some ways, figure out functional aspects, where is activating when certain things happen or uh, timing aspects, how fast things happen. The problem still is that we don't have technologies that allow us to do all of those at once. So, you know, we think about the pretty pictures of the brain that have dots of what are supposed to be blood over the top. So a bold signal over the top thing is a bold signal takes four to eight seconds for blood to replenish the area that oxygen was just used. So that's how an fMRI works is an fMRI is looking at um, oxygen being going into the areas with the assumption that if you were using an area, you burnt oxygen. And so 
the oxygenated blood comes back in and you measure that, but that takes four to eight seconds. So anytime you're seeing an fMRI, four to eight seconds in brain speak, you've moved on five conversations from now. And so it's this fascinating thing where you're trying to look back and see. And, and even though we've advanced a ton, it's this world we know nothing about. And I think that's, that's why I'm a neuroscientist and love it. It's just, it's this fascinating thing. So as we finish up here, I want you to throw a study at me that's been done recently that's that's related to this somehow, whether it's yours or someone else's, just toss something out that, that listeners would appreciate. Yeah, so I think one of the cool places to look that's a direct link from this is in the mid-1990s, the Damasios, and I mentioned them a, a bit back, uh, reconstructed where this happened in Phineas. And part of why they did that is they were kind of the leaders in looking at how lesions can affect uh, neuropsych everything. So uh, be it cognitive abilities or social cognitive abilities or personality and all of that. And they started bringing this forward and they started looking at stroke victims, sometimes uh, traumatic brain injury victims as well, um, who have had some kind of middle prefrontal cortex um, damage that has happened. And they started to figure out across the board what happens there? And so one of the studies that I love came, I believe it's the late 90s or early 2000s, and it was on moral judgment. And they were trying to look at if you damage parts of the prefrontal cortex, um, everyone's heard of the trolley dilemmas probably at this point, they're pretty common. But the question was, if you damage this area, are people suddenly willing to push a person in front of the train to stop, which is something most of us aren't willing to do um, in order to save other people, mind you, but still stop a train from happening. Uh, most people won't do that. And it turns out as you start to lesion parts of the medial prefrontal cortex naturally, and you watch it happen, you end up having, uh, they're willing to do this. And so I think that's one of the, the fascinating pieces for me is that lesioning this and the insights from Phineas have led to an entire program where you're starting to look at morality, you're starting to look at theory of mind or perspective taking abilities, empathic abilities, as well as self-control, all things that kind of stem together. And there's been a school of research on this for the past 20 years. Most of it came out of Iowa, uh, University of Iowa for a long time, which has a lesion patient group. Now there's uh, several studies coming out of University of Southern California, which is where both of the Dimaggio's are at this point. That is awesome. Kelsey wants to know, um, how did he die? So I think we need to like end the story before we move forward. <laughs> um, Okay, how he died is, is seizures. So uh, it was 10 or 11 years after this happened, he started having, um, his family had moved to somewhere in California, I think Bay Area, um, and he started having seizures, um, had one small-ish seizure that he recovered relatively fast from, and it was followed within the next couple of days by several, and that ended up, well, he didn't die of seizures, he died arguably of hypothermia, but it's because of the seizure pieces, which are the, the shaking that happens ends up uh, making your brain triage, figure out where blood should go. And then, and as it's starting to happen, it has to decide between heart and brain and ends up stopping the heart at some point when you're having uh, too much of that. So yeah, seizures. So he, he lived like more than a decade after that, which is really uh, remarkable as well in a, a crazy ride too, apparently, <laughs> as, as he lived out his last, last years. Yeah, that he is... made it to, to 1860, May 21st, 1860. So about two weeks after this episode will be the anniversary of, uh, of his passing. <laughs> um, 
to be, yeah, I guess he was about 37 years old when he, uh, when he died. So Jason, that was awesome. I appreciate it. G, should we, uh, we get into a positive note? What are we talking about? So at the end of almost every episode, we end with a positive note. And today, since we are talking about the brain and you're um, thinking about when we first learned about Phineas Gage and likely it was in intro to psych, we decided that we would talk about our favorite memory of intro to psych. Um, and I should preface this by saying that we asked Jason if he would like to contribute uh, to this where he fessed up that he did not take intro to psych because he was some you know, theater person. Philosophy, uh, philosophy. <laughs> no, it was philosophy. I, yeah. <laughs> and so he never had the, the joy of taking intro to psych. So Ryan, it's up to you and I to relate our favorite memories. Perfect. So do you want to go first? Uh, or, yeah, sure. Uh, so I was thinking about this and, um, it's funny. I mean, it's been a while for me. Well, I mean, also for you, it's been a while for both of us since we took intro psych. But um, so this would have been 1995 um, when I took my intro psych course. Yeah, this would have been in my 1995 that I was taking intro psych. So a long time ago. And um, what I remember is uh, actually, I think Milgram. Uh, in particular, which uh, was a really like standout study for me. But part of it was how it was presented because on the very first day of class, so you have to think I'm a, I'm a first year college student and I go in and, and you know, I was not, as, as has been noted on this show before, I it was not a particularly good student at this time. But this was me trying to get back into it and try and, try and do well again. And um, I remember the instructor on the first day of class, uh, Putting, like we did the thing where you took like a true false quiz to, to see like what you already knew or what you didn't know and, and stuff like that. And one of the questions was about Milgram. And I remember thinking he wants us to say false because he wants us to believe that no human being would ever shock a person to death uh, just because they were ordered to do so. But he wouldn't have asked that unless the answer was true. And so I guessed true and I was correct, but I remember thinking, I need to know more about this. I was really intrigued about that particular piece. And so then it must've been probably a month and a half later that we actually got to it in intro psych and, and started talking about that study. I remember the video, um, cause there's uh, like a lot of those famous early studies, there's usually some good video and some good audio uh, to, to catch it up. And I remember watching the video of that, which is really, something to watch. So I think that was probably it. It's a sad, uh, positive note in a lot of ways, but that's where I'm at. All How, about right. you? Well, How about you, G? It's been longer for me <laughs> um, since I, yeah, I, it, I won't even say when I took an intro to psych, but I remember as a first year college student, that I thought I wanted to be uh, a therapist. And I thought that that's only what psychology was. Like it was that, and that's what I was going to be. And that's what I was going to learn. And so I landed in this intro to psych class and I, I was so baffled by them talking about like science and like, what, why am I learning all of this stuff? I just want to be a therapist. 
And it ended up that I am, you know, not a clinical psychologist at all. I'm actually like an environmental psychologist. And so I think it was, it really opened my eyes to what psychology really is, which is uh, such a broad and fascinating and awesome field that does include, you know, clinical and, and counseling, of course, but all of the other awesome things we're talking about, like neuroscience and uh, things like that. Um, and I think that that's my favorite memory was realizing that psychology is a science that is very diverse. How fun. Yes, that is a truly, truly, truly positive note. Nicely done. Unlike my failure where I just talk about people <laughs> killing people or being willing to kill people. So. Jason, anything to add? Yeah, well, I can't say about intro psych, obviously, for the reasons we already discussed. Um, in my in one of my intro neuro type courses, I recall, and it directly goes to this episode, actually, um, our instructor telling us before the weekends, a bunch of college students, well, the original studies on prefrontal cortical lesions and trying to do those would give adult subjects alcohol and it acts as a temporary lesion to your prefrontal cortex in multiple ways. And I, and it's still stuck with me and it's still something I use because there are some studies from the nineties and early two thousands that are talking about how, um, you know, a legally drunk, uh, aspect is going to get you to, uh, the equivalent of a temporary lesion to your prefrontal cortex. So it's something fascinating to think about. Not positive per se, but interesting. I mean, I think what I've just discovered is that I've been doing some of this research for quite a long time. Um, so, <laughs> so very good. Hey, before we uh, before we go, uh, anything to plug? Anything we want to tell people about? Jason, what do you got? Uh, yeah, so for anyone listening, especially if you're a parent and you might have a kid that would be willing not to participate, obviously, in the type of brain science we were just talking about, but in the non-invasive aspects. We have a full lab on campus uh, where we study uh, usually toddlers and into early childhood. We look at how their brains are interacting using EEG, and you've probably seen these. They look like kind of a space cap that you put on. Um, we have them watch cartoons and everything I'm interested in looking at is about how kids start to learn right and wrong, how they start to be empathic towards each other. And hopefully uh, pandemic everything, we're going to be starting to test this summer safely with masks and distanced. Um, but if you're interested in participating, please look us up and contact uh, neuroscience lab at uwgb.edu and we'd love to hear from you. Um, hopefully by the summer we'll be up and testing again. Absolute latest would be by the fall and we'd love to have you in. Well, it's really fun. My kids have done it. It's a great experience. They usually have a blast. So they get to sometimes even sit in one of those little spaceship looking things like they have at the, uh, at the barbershop for kids. So very cool. G, how about a rocket you? ship. Yeah. They get to sit in a rocket ship. Yeah. How about you, G? Anything to plug? I, um, um, I, it will be when this episode launches, it will be close to graduation. And so um, just thinking about our awesome psychology uh, soon to be graduates. And so a big shout out uh, to all the students who have persevered uh, through a pandemic and still 
managed to graduate from college and going on to great things, whether it be a career or grad school or wherever they're headed, I just want to give them a shout out and let them know we're really proud of them. Yes, that is amazing. So I would agree with that. We're super, super proud of uh, students. Um, it's In fact, we're going to do our next episode on that very thing, which I will admit, I don't know if um, that if we've already recorded that at the time that this episode comes out or not, but we're going to be talking about resilience. We're going to be talking about hope. Uh, it's going to be a really good, exciting final episode. And we hope to get some students involved in it. So uh, super. Um, so I just want to let everybody know that uh, you can see Phineas Gage's skull. It is at a museum at, uh, at Harvard. Um, and so you can actually go there and see the exhibit. It, I, I have not been there, but it's pretty cool. Uh, I think there's a there's a lot of uh, I've seen lots of pictures of it. it. Looks pretty great. I also will just tell you sometimes I think uh, that I'd really like to see a movie about a group of psychology professors who steal it, uh, and how that would be my dream is to watch a movie like a a sneaker esque movie about college professors who sneak in and steal Phineas Gage's skull. So if anyone in Hollywood is listening, please make that movie. Right, G? You've got wow. a friend. So fun. What's going on? I have a friend. I'm going to call him right now. <laughs> this is you should. Idea. That's great. I'm gonna pursue that. We'll we'll get back to you, listeners. <laughs> We're gonna start writing a script right now. So um another quick thank you to our intern Kelsey. You can see her work firsthand if you give us a follow at Psych and Stuff Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, I also, you can follow me on social at anger professor and G what's your handle? Georgina W D. So G E O R J E A N N A W D. Excellent. Psychology and stuff is a production of Phoenix studios at the university of Wisconsin, green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin and the production manager is Kate Harley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick. Our sound engineer in this episode is Sarah Miller. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese, and our intern is Kelsey Engelhardt. Special thanks also to our guest today, Dr. Jason Powell. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dundas. Keep being amazing.